So tonight we are starting a new series in the book of Hebrews, as already stated, and Keegan did a great job of making the uh, logo up there, and you guys got some notes. And really this whole summer, I have been thinking about the book of Hebrews, I've been reading through it, and it is, a, in a way, an intimidating book. There, there are a lot of unique parts to this, but it's really a great book, and I'm looking forward to going through it with you. And when I think of the book of Hebrews, I think of a superlative, excuse me, um, as we've all probably heard before, you might be great, but he is greater, but this person is the greatest, greatest right? So many times we hear superlatives and words like these, and, and I, I kind of just did a quick Google search and I found a few of them. So, so here are a few superlatives for you. A person who wishes to help others is great. The one who helps others is greater. But the one who helps without letting the other person know and expects nothing in return is the greatest. A person who understands the other person's love is great. A person who feels the same way for the other is greater, but... The one who expresses his love and gives it the most priority is the greatest. I'll give you one more here. A person who has a dream in life is great. The one who wishes to get the dream into reality is greater. But the person who works extremely hard till his dream is fulfilled is the greatest. And I'm sure we could think of a lot of other things to say like that. But in this epistle in this letter, the author of Hebrews wants us to imagine the same superlative for the person of Jesus. Jesus isn't just great, nor is he just greater than any other idea or philosophy or way of life. He is the greatest. This book of Hebrews is a really significant book in the New Testament. And like I mentioned earlier, it at times can be a really intimidating read. Uh, one, namely, because there are so many Old Testament allusions. The author of Hebrews, whoever he was writing to, we have, we have no idea who wrote it or who, really who he was writing to, but he assumed that his audience had a wealth of knowledge about the sacrificial system, about various and vague Old Testament characters. He just assumed that his readers knew the Old Testament. And therefore, when we read um, Hebrews, we can be like, man, who is Melchizedek? What is happening here? Matter of fact, I had a former student text me about three months ago, and I was just beginning to think about Hebrews, and he's like, hey, bro, random question. What's up with Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter, I think, six or five? And at the time, I didn't even know. I was like, oh, that's a good question. I know it's something to do with Abraham and Genesis, but it's kind of, you know, sometimes a little interesting and, and not always very intuitive. But secondly, I think the reason why the book of Hebrews is kind of a hard and intimidating book at times is because of how many warning passages it gives us. Matter of fact, if you just look in a few weeks, we'll look at this passage in more detail. But chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to that what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And again and again and again, we have this warning of do not reject such a great salvation lest you fall away. 
And as Christians, how do we reconcile verses like Philippians 1.6, which says, the work that God began in you, he will bring it to completion. Yet in Hebrews, we're warned again and again and again not to fall away. And sometimes we have a hard time of, of kind of figuring out, am I supposed to live in fear? And I always have to doubt my salvation. Am I not really a Christian? I don't do these things. And because of some of these reasons, the book of Hebrews sometimes has a stigma about it. It's a neat book. It's a good book. But... But man, it's kind of hard. The late R.C. Sproul, though, once was asked if he could have just one book with him, if he had to go to an island and pick one book, he said, obviously I picked the Bible. But even if in the Bible I had to pick one book, the book I would pick is the book of Hebrews because it gives us so much of the Old Testament, but also because of its main theme. And here really is the whole main theme of the book of Hebrews. You ready for it? Very simple. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So over the next couple of months, this author, whoever he may be, Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, maybe even a woman, is taking us on a journey And on this journey, the author, again and again and again, wants to show us how incredible and how amazing Jesus is. And along this journey, the author, he's warning us, as any good travel guy would say, don't go over there, avoid going over there. He's warning us to not overlook Jesus, to not look passively at Jesus. At other times, the author is gazing our attention to those who have gone before us. The people who have had extreme faith, who trusted God, who persevered to the end. At other times, he's going to use the living and active word of God as our guide in order that we may fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But lastly, before we jump into this passage, I think the book of Hebrews is really important for us is because if we're all being honest, every single day, in the small and the big ways, we forget that we are on a journey of following Jesus. We tend to forget who we are and where we are going. We wake up and we immediately cling our identity to what I have to do and to what are people gonna do for me today. We tend to forget our creator, and that he has made us for his glory. And Hebrews helps us see the beauty and wonder of Jesus so that we can be steered back on towards the path of perseverance and faithfulness to our Savior Jesus. That's what Hebrews is trying to do. And as any good travel guide would do, the author here in this little section I'm about to read in Hebrews 1 gives us a roadmap for the rest of the book of Hebrews. As we're heading on this journey, he wants to kind of say, hey, these are the main stops that we're going to be looking at. These are going to be the main themes. And what we're going to be surprised about, but really not be surprised about, is that we begin with Jesus. In the middle, it's all about Jesus. And we end with Jesus. So in this little introduction, we're going to see all the themes and points and folds of the rest of the letter. Let's go ahead and look down at it. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, 
and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love, and we thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. And we ask now that the Holy Spirit would just give us wisdom and guidance as we look to this word, which is living and active. And Father, we pray that in everything that we would say and do, that it would bring you much glory. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you remember a time in your life where you desperately wanted to be noticed or heard? Maybe you're struggling with loneliness. Maybe you're really trying to get some important words out and it just seemed like you were overlooked. I was recently watching golf. Surprise, surprise. And I remember, so the, the, the guy had just won and there were just lines of people on both sides of the row. And a lot of these people in the row were little kids, little girls, little boys, and they're holding out a t-shirt holding out a hat, and they, they have a pen in their hand. And this athlete would just, just walk right past, not even look at any of these people. Now, to be fair, at times, I've seen these same athletes, you know, kind of stop, sign a few autographs, and then keep walking. Has anyone had that experience before? Maybe you went to, like, a baseball or football game or a concert, and you're in a big crowd of people, and you're trying to get someone's autographs. I remember I went to, like, a... A single A baseball game. Who the heck are these guys anyways, right? But I saw a bunch of people lining up autographs, and I go down there, and the team is kind of walking through, and they, they sign a few things, but they would sign like three or four things, and they'd be like, again, single A baseball players. They probably just graduated high school, and they'd be like, enough is enough. I'm done. Like, you're that cool, dude? Like, come on. And I, I kind of I think about that um, a lot for some reason, that they just kind of think like, ah, oh, you know, I don't need to do that. Even though these little kids really desperately want to be heard and noticed, they want to walk away and say, Tiger Woods, talk to me. Rory McIlroy, sign my hat. And to be fair, if every athlete stopped to give every single autograph, they would never get home, right? The line would go on forever. But sometimes... In our walk with God, in our relationship with Jesus, we are kind of like a little kid desperate for an autograph. We are desperate for a word. We are desperate to be noticed. And sometimes, maybe even in our longings and our loneliness and our hardships, we might even ask a question or we might talk to God and we might say something along the lines of, God, if only you would speak to me. God, if only you would give me a special word right now. God, I'm struggling. I need a word. God, God, where are you? I know in times of my life, I've cried out to God in such desperation. And what is so significant about these three little verses that we just read is that the author of Hebrews begins with a very beautiful and poetic way 
that introduces us to a God who desires for us to know him. We see a God who takes the time to notice us, a God who says, you are important enough for me to self-disclose myself to. And so tonight, as we, as we begin this study in Hebrews, as we look at Hebrews chapter one, and as we just consider these, this little introductory comments before the letter, here's the one thing that this passage is telling us. And this is hopefully the one thing that I want you guys to take away. So here it is. God has spoken. We should listen. God has spoken. We should listen. Unlike Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and those single-A baseball players, unlike any celebrity who walks away from a disappointed child, God desires for us to know him. He has revealed himself to us And because of that, we should listen. So with our time tonight, I want to frame our time in these three verses by looking at two points. Very simple. First is this, God's word. And second is this, God's supreme word. Really, really simple. God's word. And secondly, God's supreme word. So if you look back down at it, verse 1, it begins by saying this, long ago at many times and in many ways. The introduction to the book of Hebrews provides the way in which the author is beginning to show us the context of the gospel. So in this letter of 13 chapters, he is going to give us a grand vision of who Jesus is. And he's going to walk us through a lot of Old Testament passages. But the very first thing that he wants to do The very first thing he decides to start off by explaining the gospel, the good news of God's unmerited love towards sinners, is by saying that God has spoken. That God has spoken. And when when I say in my point, uh, God's word, what I'm referring to is not necessarily a generic way to describe the Bible, but really to describe the fact that God has revealed himself through word. I was listening to a sermon kind of introduction video with a few guys yesterday, and I also um, took Tyler and Keegan through some of these videos this summer. And, And the pastor at one point said, if God were to just speak to us by his actual word instead of mediated through a man through written word if God just came to you and actually just spoke we would all die his word is so powerful and so what is so significant and what is so unique is that God desires for us to actually know who he is I think we are really good about talking about God's grace over our sin, and we talk about Jesus a lot, and we talk about how Jesus died on the cross, but can I just say something, students? I don't want to make a simple point too complicated, but, but those two words in verse one, God spoke, should be a huge encouragement to your soul. That we have a talking God. This, 
idea of a talking God who actually communicates, who actually wants us to know who he is, goes in the face of a deist perspective of God. Sometimes, you know, people think that God is this impersonal force and he kind of is just in and um everything and anything and and this force kind of made the world and the cosmos and and i have god and you have god kind of like the idea of of the force in star wars but what we're going to see a little later as we even talk about jesus and his role in creation that god stands outside of creation and he speaks to us And I think we need to understand that God's self-disclosure to us, the fact that we have this book, that we have this letter, is God's grace to you. We have no claim on God. We don't get to say, just because I was made in your image, that I get to know everything about you. God chooses to reveal himself to us. Francis Schaeffer, a really important guy, he has this book called He is there and he is not silent. And in this book, he says this. It is nothing but pure grace on God's part for him to speak to us. We, humans, do not deserve his life-giving words. If God could not or did not speak, we would be left in darkness and ignorance. One of my all-time favorite songs, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Great song, great song. First verse. In our longing and in our darkness. What does it say? The light of life has come. You know what that verse is saying? When we were in our unbelief, when we were lost, what did God do? He came and revealed himself. He brought light. But more than just God spoke, he begins by saying long ago and many times in many ways. I, I, I was tempted to put up the, the Greek text of this passage because what the author is doing is he's using alliteration. Every single word, long ago, many times, many ways, prophets, all start with the letter rho in Greek. And so it's a really neat and poetic way using a lot of meter to kind of make this poetic statement that God has spoken to us. But long ago gives us the idea that the gospel was not just kind of given to us in a vacuum. Sometimes I think people think that, that the good news about Jesus' love for sinners happens at Christmas time. Like there is this really famous heretic called Marcion and he more or less taught a lot, a lot of people, led a lot of people astray that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and hate and violence. And so we don't like the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love and mercy and grace and of Jesus. And he pretty much had to separate Jesus's divinity and deity away from the Father. But what Hebrews 1 is saying is that God has spoken in a lot of ways. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through visions. He once spoke through a donkey. He spoke in historical events. God, if you read the Old Testament, it is full of God speaking and communicating who he is. And what's important to know is that Jesus is not just a second part B of the story. Jesus is not just something that, ah, man, this this whole creation plan is going to crap. Hey, Jesus, do you think you could step in? 
The whole story and what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us is that from creation to the new creation, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so the gospel story is so much more than just, hey, it's that time of year. Christmas is coming. No, the gospel has been in the works from long ago. And so kind of what we call this in verse one, we call this progressive revelation, that God was slowly revealing himself over time. That doesn't mean that it was a lesser or was a bad version of it, but God took the time through the nation of Israel primarily to slowly prepare the way for the supreme word. But we're not quite there yet. So God has spoken. You're thinking, okay, this is cool. You seem kind of interested there. You seem kind of passionate. But like, what does this mean for me? How does this help me? So let me just say a few words of application over this first point. Do you realize that in your longing to have a word from God, that sometimes in your loneliness and your desire to want to be cool, desire to want to be noticed, your desire to want to have relationships in your life, that you already have the best word at your disposal, that God has spoken to you, I don't want to say all the time, but I will say sometimes. I listen to Christian radio, and it just cracks me up because so many of these songs are like, God, I just want to know you. I want to know your will. Speak to me. Who are you? Maybe I don't say who are you, but that would be like pretty bad on Christian radio. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's almost like these, these people are writing songs, scratching their heads. Who is God? God, where are you? And here's the good news. He's spoken to you. You can know him. God is not playing hide-and-go-seek. He's not trying to play, you know, you know, kind of freshman year of high school, that girl's playing hard to get, you know. She purposely doesn't re- respond to your text right away, you know. She's kind of making you feel it out. Maybe some of you know what that's like. I don't know. But God's not like that. Matter of fact, the, the Christmas story, what a great example. What does God do to announce the birth of his son? He sends angels. That's quite the announcement, right? My announcement was on Facebook. Take a little picture of a baby. Like, hey, I had a kid. <laughs> God's like, no, I'm sending the angels. Can you imagine what those shepherds must have thought? Oh, look, angels. <laughs> Maybe. But guys, listen. When we can see God's revelation to us, that he wants us to know us, when we can see that as his grace to us, I think when we approach God's word in devotions, when we approach God's word on Sunday night or Sunday morning church, when we think about God's word, it, it, it becomes suddenly, what a, what a privilege that I get to know God. What a privilege it is right now that we have time set aside on our Sunday nights to even have detailed study of this word. That God has spoken, and we can know our creator, and we can know who he's like, and and what he's done for us, and we can know how to respond to him, and we can know how to live a life that gives him honor and glory and praise. What a privilege. If if we wake up tomorrow morning and we feel like, I have to read my Bible, we don't understand the grace that is ours, the, the beautiful measure of God's grace, just to simply know him. Another important point, to be brief, the Old Testament is valuable to us. 
the Old Testament, God spoke. It is not a lesser word. It is pointing us to Christ. And what's helpful about the book of Hebrews, as we read through it, the book of Hebrews helps us understand Jesus' role in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, this morning, if you were in Sunday morning church with Pastor Carl, he like straight up, it felt like he read my points at the end of my sermon, talking about the priests not having chairs. And I was like, literally, I was going to say that, because he was preaching in Exodus, and he looked to the book of Hebrews to explain where Christ was in the Old Testament. Right? And so the Old Testament is not just some boring book. That is God's grace to you. Love the Old Testament just as much as the New Testament. But to, just to kind of reiterate, um, to, to re-say my, my application to you. High schoolers, God wants you to know him. He wants you to know who he is. And he has revealed himself to us through this word. What a blessing. What a privilege. If you study church history, Christians have literally sold every possession they had to get the book of Colossians in their own language. Treasure this word. And so if this point wasn't already wonderful enough on its own, the author of Hebrews lifts our hearts and visions to an even more glorious truth about who God is by showing us our second point. God's supreme word. God's supreme word. Now, I, I put off talking about context enough here in the original audience. But like I mentioned a little bit earlier, that this author of Hebrews is probably speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. Now, part of the, the struggle of understanding the Bible correctly is trying to understand who was the original audience reading this. We can't really know what this means for ourselves until we understand what did it mean for them. And the author of Hebrews is talking to some Jews who probably came to faith in Christ, and because of persecution, because people were giving them a hard time about following the Messiah, they were tempted, and even maybe some of them were, going back into their former religion of Judaism. And this is why the author of Hebrews is trying to again and again and again and saying, Jesus is better. You know, angels are great, but Jesus is even much better than the angels. Moses, great servant of God. Jesus is better. And he'd give them warnings. Don't overlook such a great salvation. And because of that, because this Jewish audience was so tempted to go back, it's helpful for us to understand what these Jews would have probably been like in the first century. And something we do know about Judaism is that the Jews really liked their traditions. They really liked their old way of thought. And so if you were a Jewish Christian, you were someone who really liked God's messengers, which is primarily angels and the prophets. Now, again, to us, we're thinking like angels, like that's kind of weird. And, and prophets, we, we might think of something to do with a big beard and, and weird guy. But in the Jewish tradition, these are the people who spoke for God. And so they had a high esteem but Jewish people also thought really highly of the sacrificial system. They thought really highly of the Aaronic priesthood. They thought really highly of the Torah. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do through the whole letter is try to just show them how Jesus is a much better priest. Jesus is a much better 
messenger. Jesus is a much better once and for all sacrifice. And with that in mind, that is why these next two verses are so significant and beautiful. Yeah, I just love the way it's phrased. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God has spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... It's like he got one verse in and he couldn't help but just want to transition to talk about, but I got a better word for you. I got a, I got a better deal. But in these last days, and what most people think that means is this term last days, is not necessarily the last days of the earth, but really for them in their context, what they understood the last days to mean was the days when the Messiah would come. And so because Christ has come, we are in the last days, right? In these last days, even though God has spoken, and he's done a lot of that in a lot of different ways through a lot of different people, we have a really good word for you. We have a supreme word. And what is it? He has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by his son. It's like he's trying to say to these guys, hey guys, listen. This is his original audience. Guys, angels are really cool and all. Prophets, man, yeah, I'm with you. They're my people. But Jesus is so much better. Do you want good or do you want great? Answer, do you want, do you want good or do you want great? great? Do you want great or do you want the greatest? The greatest. And that's the invitation he's trying to give us. So God is no longer merely speaking through prophets. He is speaking through a son, his son. And if I could just say it very clearly, so you guys can all just hear it, what the author of Hebrews wants to tell us is this, that the son is the fullest, most complete revelation of the father possible since he shares the father's divine nature as the second member of the Trinity. Now that's a mouthful. And what I want to do is by explaining through all of these lists of who Jesus is and what he has done, show you what I just meant by saying that. And to show us that Jesus is the supreme word, what I like to do is show us how these seven things of who Jesus is and what he has done and why he should be supreme in our lives. So we'll go through these kind of categorically here. Let's go ahead and look down in verse two. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by, um, excuse me, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, back then in their society, in their day and age, the, the son who received the inheritance, the heir, was a big deal, right? And so what, what, what the author is trying to do is he's kind of showing, hey, if God is giving the son the right to be the heir, that means that God is giving his son full authority. And so what that really means is that the son has the full authority to do business for the father. Um, it's interesting, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, he's talking to the disciples, and I believe it was Thomas who said to Jesus, Jesus, if only we could see the father, then we'd be all right. You know, we just need to see the father. And Jesus looks at him like dumbfounded, almost, that's how I read anyways. Um, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
Right, and that's what Jesus is saying. I, I, ha- I, I have, I'm the heir of God. I have all the authority granted by God to do the will of God, to do the business of God. And so in essence, the first thing we see right off the bat is that, you know, all those sacrificial systems, the messengers and all of that, guess what? I got the keys of the kingdom. I'm the son. And so what we see is not a Jesus who's kind of like second in charge. He is in charge. And so more than that, I think for us, it's hard to kind of explain because we're getting into this, this idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. But I don't have any sons. I only have a daughter. But imagine I had a son. You can imagine, right? Can I? Anyways, maybe you, can, maybe you can't. But if I had a son one day and I started a business and I said, hey, I'm going out of town for a year. I'm going to go travel the world. My son is in charge. Now, you might look at my son and there's some family resemblance there. But for the most part, like... Like, yeah, I understand that he has the authority of his dad, but he's still different. Does that make sense? He's still not really the boss. He's just, this, he's just the boss's kid. And, and probably people would look at that and say, oh, you're nepotistic, and you just give you know, your little kid all the, all, all the authority, and he shouldn't have it. But here's what's interesting about Jesus being the son of God. Look what it says in verse 3. Two, two really important descriptions about this son and how it's different than if I were to have a son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now that word in glory, by the way, every single word in these couple of verses, there's so much beneath, there's so many layers to it, but, but that word glory, he is the radiance of the glory of God. When the glory of God came on the temple, came on the tabernacle. It had a glow to it. That is the same glory that is true of the sun. But more than that, look what it says. He even like puts the nail in a little deeper. He says this, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. Why is Jesus better? It's because he's actually God. You know, as Christians, we believe in one God, but in three distinct persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet there is one God. It is a mystery that is hard for us to understand, but it is so important to understand the Trinitarian nature of God. Because in it, we see that Jesus, being God and being man, is not just someone we can look at passively. He literally is the radiant glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. One time a theology student asked Martin Luther in nature about, a question about the nature of God, and Martin Luther responded by saying this, I think an angel would be scared to ask that question. And what Martin Luther was saying is, is, is when, when you really try to understand fully who God is and his nature, even the angels are scared to ask that question because he is so unlike us. He is so other. He is so transcendent. What the author of Hebrews is trying to kind of catch a little bit is that this Jesus is not just like a little son that you send into the minor leagues. He's God. And more than that, he goes on to say that he made the universe. Look what he says. And he upholds 
Um, excuse me, back in verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Back in verse 3, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, the author of Hebrews is really giving us a clear picture of John 1, right? John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and through him he created the whole world. Now, I'm kind of getting a lot of details here, but let me say something really important here. Jesus is the creator of everything. And because he is the creator, he has the right to sustain everything about life. So let me tell you this really quick. If the world ended today and the cosmos folded in on itself, it is because Jesus wanted the world to end and the cosmos to fold in on itself. If tomorrow you wake up and it's perfect weather on a Monday and it's not this gloomy rain off and on, it's because Jesus decided to give you perfect weather on that day. The power to create is also the power to sustain. If the world ended, it's because Jesus allowed it. So more than just who he is, right? The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of nature, the creator and the sustainer of all of creation. What has Jesus done? Look what it says. Verse three, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reason why Jesus has the authority and is the heir of the Father is one, because of who he is, the creator, he is God, but two, because of what he has done, namely in his life, his death, and his resurrection. See, the author of Hebrews is gonna lead us on a journey that right in the beginning, he has to just tell us up front why Jesus is better. Jesus is better because of who he is and because of what he has done. And let me tell you guys something. When I was younger, I would tell my mom that I was hungry. I said, Mom, I need a snack. Mom, I need a snack. And she'd say, Aaron, I think you're thirsty. No, I'm pretty sure I'm hungry. Aaron, you haven't drank a lot of water. Drink some water. And I would drink some water and actually feel better. Sometimes we don't even know what we need. We don't even know our own problems. But the Bible says your first and foremost problem is always this that you are separated from God because of your sins. And the reason why Jesus is so great, why he is the supreme word, is because he allowed for your sins to be purified. And the idea of Jesus sitting down is the idea that his work is done. It is finished. There is nothing else to accomplish. There is no priest to intercede. I don't need to speak to anyone else to speak to God. I have God's full access right now because of Christ. He is sitting down. This passage is too rich. It is too weighty for me to even like, I'm just digging at the surface here. I mean, just think, think about just in these three verses, here are all the doctrines included. The doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of creation, the Trinity, the relationship of the Old and New Testament, uh, Christology, talking about the atonement. How about all the titles and all, all of who Christ is? Who is Jesus? He is the son of God. He is the revelation of God's fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the heir of all things. He's the agent of creation. I'll get there. 
He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the expression of God's nature. He is the preserver of all creation. He is the purifier for God's people. He is the mediator for God's people. Just in three verses. And he's trying to just draw our attention to this, this simple, but yet most, most profound point that Jesus is better. And the implication, it should be obvious. When you have such a description about such a person, it should want us to, to love Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to see him as beautiful, to know that in all areas of life, Jesus is better. But like I said, on this journey that we are on, we forget who we are and where we are going. God has spoken, we should listen, but the problem is that we don't listen. We forget to listen to this word. And so we're called to have faith. We're called to be coming back to following Jesus. And so as, as in application, guys, let me just say what I think the real application of this passage is. Say it really simply. The application is Jesus. It's to know and love Jesus. And I think what we'll find in the book of Hebrews is that's the application a lot. And my big question for you is this. Is that enough for you? Is it enough for you to sit there and just hear again and again and again how beautiful your Savior is? How wonderful he is? One time I, I heard a song... And I, I hear a lot of songs, listen to a lot, a lot of music, but, but for some reason, this song left a very profound impact on my heart. Maybe the moment I was in in life, maybe it's the mood I was in, I don't know what it was. But for some reason, when, when I heard this song, I just knew that, that it was a song that was going to stay close to my heart for a long time. And it said this, it said, In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In all of my victories, Jesus is better. More than any comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. More than any love I can get from another, Jesus is better. And guys, can I just just tell you that there's a way where we can hear those words and it just sounds cheesy. Hey, Jesus is better than drugs, man. Hey, Jesus is better than girls. You don't need girls. Jesus is better. But I tell you, when I heard those words, it, tra it transcended a simple just, hey, Jesus is better. It was a, a knowing and tasting for yourself the goodness of the gospel of who Jesus is and knowing that deep in my heart, deep in my soul, that no matter what any person, thing, accomplishment, sorrow, whatever comes my way, Jesus will always be more sweet. And so as you guys wake up tomorrow, as you start your school week, when you are going through your week, here's what I hope you remember. God has spoken to us supremely in his son Jesus. We should listen. We should have faith. 
We should know that this Jesus is better. God has spoken. We should listen. Let me pray. Father, to say that in all of our sorrows, Jesus is better, to say that in all of our victories, more than any comfort, more than all the riches that Jesus is better, Lord, we know that we need your help and your guidance to make our hearts believe that. That we are prone to forget that Jesus is better. We often do not listen to your son. And so, God, I just pray for all of us this week. God, when we are tempted to feel that you are distant, when we are tempted to think that the Christian life relies on our effort, Lord, help us to run to your word and to listen. Help us, Lord, when the disciples were with Jesus on the mountain and they saw his glory and you came down in a cloud and you told the disciples, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Help us to listen to your voice through your word, by your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.